0: Welcome to Noteworthy on All Classical Portland. I'm your host, Lindsay Maynard, and today we'll be listening to my recent interview with Ruth Ozeki, an award-winning writer, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. Ozeki's 2013 novel, A Tale for the Time Being, is the Everybody Reads 2023 pick at Multnomah County Library. Everybody Reads is a community-wide book club bringing people together through literature and discussion. During this hour, we'll hear Ozeki discuss the process of writing her acclaimed novel. We'll talk about the relationship between readers and writers and the importance of libraries. Stay tuned for Noteworthy on All Classical Portland. Chapter One Now Imagine you are walking along the beach in British Columbia. You're a writer, and you've been trying and failing to write a memoir. Doing a little beachcombing helps clear your frazzled mind. Underneath green bulbs of kelp, something catches your eye. A plastic bag with a Hello Kitty lunchbox inside. You open the lunchbox and find a diary written in Japanese. You open the small red book
1: and begin reading the first entry. Hi, my name is Now, and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I will tell you. A time being is someone who lives in time, and that means you and me and every one of us who is or was or ever will be. As for me, right now, I am sitting in a French-made cafe in a Kiba electricity town, listening to a sad chanson that is playing sometime in your past, which is also my present, writing this and wondering about you somewhere in my future. And if you're reading this, then maybe by now you're wondering about me, too. You wonder about me. I wonder about you. Who are you and what are you doing? Are you in a New York subway car hanging from a strap or soaking in your hot tub in Sunnyvale? Are you sunbathing on a sandy beach in Phuket or having your toenails buffed in Abu Dhabi? Are you a male or a female or somewhere in between? Actually, it doesn't matter very much, because by the time you read this, everything will be different, and you will be nowhere in particular, flipping idly through the pages of this book, which happens to be the diary of my last days on earth, wondering if you should keep on reading.
0: Curious about what happens next, I don't blame you. That was an excerpt from Ruth Ozeki's best selling novel, A Tale for the Time Being, which was published by Penguin Books in 2013. We just met Now, a 16 year old girl with a lot on her plate. Until recently, Nao's father was a successful software engineer in sunny California, but after losing his job, Nao's parents were forced to move back to Japan settling in a small apartment in Tokyo where money is tight and Nao's father battles depression. Nao, homesick for her life and friends in California, feels isolated in Tokyo and suffers relentless bullying from her peers. All of these factors lead Nao to consider taking her own life, but before she does, she wants to document the life of her grandmother, Jiko, a sassy and wise 104-year-old Buddhist nun. Now's reader, the woman who finds her diary, is named Ruth, a Japanese-American writer living in British Columbia with her husband. Ruth also feels disconnected in her surroundings and is struggling to finish a memoir about her mother. Once she finds Now's diary, she becomes obsessed. She wonders, does Now really exist? Is she alive? And if so, where is she now? A Tale for the Time Being unfolds on these parallel tracks. We read Now's diary and learn more about her just as Ruth does. And we follow Ruth as she desperately tries to find Now. The book plays with the construct of time and place, fact and fiction, and the relationship between readers and writers in thrilling ways. By Now, I'm sure you've noticed the parallels between the characters of Now and Ruth You may have also noticed that we have a fictional Ruth, and a real-life Ruth, Ruth Ozeki, the author. And, of course, the Japanese name now is a homonym for the English word now, a clever trick for a novel focused on time and time beings. But that's just the beginning. Ozeki's ability to build layers of meaning and a plot that unfolds like a puzzle makes for a thrilling experience as a reader. A Tale for the Time Being is Multnomah County Library's 2023 Everybody Reads pick. Everybody Reads is a community-wide book club that provides an opportunity to come together, dive into a good book, and talk about it together. I had the privilege of speaking with Ruth Ozeki over Zoom a few weeks ago. Outside of being a best-selling novelist, Ozeki is also a filmmaker, an educator, and a Zen Buddhist priest. It's clear how important the phrase time being is within the novel. I mean, it's in the title and even the first couple sentences. My first question for Ozeki was, where did the inspiration for that phrase come from? The first time
2: I started thinking about it, the first time that phrase sort of lodged in my mind was when I was reading an essay by a 13th century Zen master named Dogen Zenji. And and he wrote an essay or a fascicle called Time Being. But of course, in Japanese, the word is uji. And so it can be translated in different ways. Sometimes it's translated as time being. Sometimes it's translated as being time. Sometimes it's translated as for the time being. Right. And depending on how you translate it and how you inflect that phrase, the meaning shifts in kind of subtle ways. So if you say for the time being with the emphasis on the time, it it almost sounds like it's a, a being like a alien being or a human being or some other kind of being, a being made out of time, kind of like a time Lord in, in Dr. Who. Right. And so that would be for the time being. Right. But if you say for the time being, then it's just like for now temporarily. Right. Um, And so that, I think that the, the kind of, Inherent instability in that phrase caused it to kind of lodge in my mind. And every time I every time I came across it in this essay, in this essay by Dogen, kept shifting its meaning in funny kinds of ways. And so I had that experience. I was studying the essay part of a Zen practice. And then many years later, the character of now of this girl just kind of came into my head. And she introduced herself and she said, Hi my name is now and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I will tell you. And then she proceeded to tell me all about what a time being is. And so obviously the phrase meant something. It was significant to me. And I think that's why it kind of lodged in my head. It was kind of like a loose tooth when you have a kind of, you (laughs) you have this thing that's bothering you. Right. And the phrase was kind of like a loose tooth in my head, (laughs) if that makes sense. And so it just kind of bothered me. And then it found a kind of expression through the character. And that launched me on this long 10 year journey to try to understand what a time being was.
3: The way that now introduced herself to you is the way that she introduces herself to us as readers mm-hmm. in the book. Okay. That's- because Ruth, I
2: mean, Ruth in the book was her first reader she's writing in her diary and she introduces herself to the world that way. And, and Ruth happens to, you know, find the book washed up on the beach and starts to read it. And, and that's how everyone then is introduced to her.
3: Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool to think that book Ruth was her first reader, but writer Ruth, you were her Mm. first listener, so to speak.
2: That's right. That's right.
3: I mean, you know, in that sense, I think the character,
2: the relationship between the character and the writer, you know, is parallel to the relationship between the character and any reader right anybody who reads that character and i think i was playing with the metafictional ramifications of that relationship you know the the relationship between the writer and the character and the reader is very synergistic it's very powerful and it it serves almost like a mirror in a way so it's kind of like an infinite regression the the two the two <laughs> you know mirror each other the reader and the writer kind of mirror each other through the mirror of the the text
3: yeah, yeah. it was it was so fun to read because of that i've never had that so implicitly and and sometimes explicitly pointed out by a writer before that hey you're here as well like you on the other side of the page like you're also part of this journey and everything that is is you and everything you bring to it is also a reflected part of the page um and so that's why <laughs> this book felt like it was like oh my gosh there's so many there's so many things happening as I'm reading it and as a reader that was so satisfying yeah. to feel like you were there like holding out your hand like hey you're here too like come on like yeah. you're here too um So I just thought that was so cool.
2: Yeah, I mean, I am. I've always been fascinated by, um, you know, the relationship. Obviously, you know, between (laughs) writers and readers, and you know, characters as well. I've always thought that it's a collaborative relationship that we have as writer and reader. And you know, I I do my best to listen to my characters and put them down on the page in a way that I can understand them. And you know, the whole their journey is my journey, and it's an exploration. And that's made a little bit more literal in this book because of the character named Ruth, right? So it's a little bit more obvious, a little bit more overt in this case. But I've always felt that the writer and the reader are collaborating on the page and that no matter what I write, I only have a certain amount of control over it, right? Um, yeah. I only have control of my experience. But once the book is out into the world, then every reader brings his or her or their lived experience to that page. And that radically transforms the book. So even though we think of A Tale for the Time Being as being a book, singular, right? It's actually not. It's a kind of quantum array of multiple books created by as many readers as pick up the book and read it. And so I think that's a fascinating, you know, reciprocal collaborative relationship that we have with our readers that writers have with their readers. And it's kind of beautiful, I think.
3: Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, art for me in general, but books, books are my first love. And I feel like, there's so many different versions of myself in so many different books, and I feel like a lot of readers and writers feel that way too. And it's it's so funny because I read this book when it came out. Um, I can't remember when it came out, but I I read it, and I remember loving it, and then I read it again recently, mm. and it's so interesting to think of an old version of myself reading it, <laughs> and, and like now, the now version, pun intended, because the main character's now, Um it's so funny to think of, you know, there was a younger Lindsay reading this years that's ago. That's right. And that's what we do with with every kind of art, right? We bring we bring yeah. all of ourselves to it and sometimes it's interesting what gets reflected back and what doesn't. Um, Which is
2: exactly what makes the work of art or, you know, a book or or anything else, what makes it alive. It's not a static <laughs> thing, right? It's alive. It's living yeah. in this in that it it grows and changes along with you. Right. And I think that's like also fascinating. I mean, Shakespeare, when we read Shakespeare, it's like bringing Shakespeare back to life. But the Shakespeare that we read is, of course, very different from the Shakespeare that people in Shakespeare's time experienced.
0: The dynamic between readers and writers, the beautiful back and forth of meaning and experience, made me think of how we as listeners engage with music. It's also how musicians engage with one another while performing. Reading and listening to music don't just happen to us. We engage, we participate with both forms of art. And as Ozeki said, that's what makes it come alive. This dynamic reminded me of Arvo Pärt's Spiegel im Spiegel. In German, the title translates to mirror in the mirror, which describes the structure of the piece itself. As Pärt himself said, each ascending note of one instrument is followed or mirrored, by a descending phrase from the accompanying instrument. In Spiegel and Spiegel, the two instruments do not exist without the other, just like writers and readers, symphonies and audiences. We make it come alive together.
3: I watched an interview with you. I can't remember who it was with, um, but you said that books are all about voice, which I really really loved that. And I I'm wondering, you know, do you feel like do you feel like you create the characters or do you feel like you hear their voices and you're more of a vessel for them?
2: You know, my experience is often, not always, but often that if I can tune into a character, um, it's almost like a radio frequency or something. And if I can tune into it, it comes through clearly. And certain characters are easier than others. For example, now was very clear. You know, she just Kind of showed up one day in my mind and announced herself and started talking and then I could barely get her to shut up. Um, what what was not clear, <laughs> what was not clear at all was who she was talking to. You know, she had a sense that, well, she knew that she was talking to somebody who she didn't know yet. She had that the confidence of a young writer who was just writing into the air, you know, writing into the world with this full confidence that somebody would be out there at some point and find her diary and pick it up and read it. But she didn't know who that person was. And so it was interesting because I didn't either for the longest time. Now, in the finished book, there's the character of Ruth who finds the book on the beach and reads it. But that character of Ruth, I mean, I started writing this book in 20. Um, oh gosh, it must have been at you know 20 2001, something like that, 2002 mm-hmm. and I didn't finish it until 2011, right. So it took me about 10 years to write it and um, and for the first well until 2011 um I didn't know uh, th- the character of Ruth didn't exist, right There were other people, other characters who, Served as kind of stand-ins, mm-hmm. um, and it was fascinating because it was really like auditioning for a film or a play. Right, I knew that yeah. I needed—I knew that I needed a character of a reader. Right, <laughs> I knew that the reader needed to be there, um, yeah. but I didn't know who it was. And so I'd have an idea and bring that bring that character in, and maybe that character was a you know a man, or maybe it was a woman. Maybe the person was old. Maybe the person was young. And I'd have the character kind of step in and find now's diary in some circumstance or other. That would be great. The character would be reading the diary. And as the character read the diary, the diary grew. Now would speak more. And so this kind of synergistic relationship would develop between the reader and the character. And then 50 pages, 100 pages later, I'd open up the manuscript one morning and suddenly realize that the whole fictional world that I'd been building just went flat. It was like the air just went out of it. Yeah. And and so this happened five or six times. And so five or six times I would thank the character, say, thank you for trying. And I'd usher the character out of the story. And then I would despair for a little while. And then another character would come to mind. And, And so I would audition that character. And same thing would happen over and over and over again. But what was interesting was that every time this happened, Now's diary grew a little bit longer because she had a different reader, right? And every time this happened, because of the different reader, a different side of Now would emerge, right? Because as we've said, there's this mirroring effect going on, right? Which we do when we meet different people, we become different people as well. And so every every time a different character stepped in, a different side of Now kind of came out to meet that reader and um and so as a result when i read the book i can see the traces of the other readers in now's development anyway make a long story short um i finished a draft of the book with a different reader in place the character had no name had no gender lived in a library had a couple of friends who also lived in the library. Um, The character really didn't do anything except read Now's diary. And so the character was not a very good character. In other words, really didn't have much of an identity at all, right? Um, You know, it was kind of an unknown reader. But I'd finished a draft, which felt kind of okay, even though I knew that the draft was terrible. Um, And I was just about to submit it to my editor when the 2011
0: earthquake and tsunami hit. The earthquake and tsunami that Uzeki just referenced is oftentimes called the Great Tohoku Earthquake. It was the most powerful in Japanese history and the fourth most powerful in the world since recorded history. The six-minute undersea earthquake triggered a tsunami that devastated portions of the country and led to the meltdown of three nuclear reactors at a nearby plant.
2: I had family and friends in Tokyo and also, you know, in, in Sendai. And so, you know, for the first couple of days, I was just watching YouTube, watching the news, trying to understand what was happening, trying to see if, yeah. you know, my family and friends were okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, and they were, they they were, they were fine. Um, but in any case, you know, after about a week of this, I suddenly realized that, that in the same way that the earthquake had kind of shaken or broken the world, it had also really broken the fictional world that I had created and that the book as it was written was no longer appropriate. It just, it, it was not the book that could go into the world at that time. Um, what do you think? Well, was- it was something about the tone of the book that it was, that Japan was suddenly in a different psychic space. I mean, in the same way that if you remember, well, maybe you don't, but after 9-11, New York was different. It right. Was a different you, city. Yeah. And people, nobody knew how to write about New York for a good, you know, for a good long while after that. You mm-hmm. couldn't write about New York because New York was now different. It was a different location. And that was true with Japan as well. It had the same kind of psychic impact.
0: Listening to Noteworthy on All Classical Portland. I'm your host, Lindsay Maynard, and today we are listening to my recent interview with Ruth Ozeki, author of the award winning novel A Tale for the Time Being, which is Multnomah County Library's Everybody Reads 2023 pick. You can visit the library's website or stop by a location for more information. When we left off, Ozeki had submitted a draft of A Tale for the Time Being to her editor when the 2011 earthquake and tsunami hit Japan. Ozeki withdrew the novel from submission and said she almost gave up until she started mulling it over with her husband, Oliver. We were,
2: we were talking about this, and he, he pointed out that the earthquake and the tsunami and the meltdown had broken the world, and so I needed to reflect that brokenness in the novel. And the way to do that, the way to kind of create a brokenness is to step into the novel myself as a real quote real person real character which Mm -hmm. would mean that when the reader read the book they were always questioning the fictionality or the you know the reality of this world the way you break a fiction is to introduce a real person into it right and that disrupts the fiction it made perfect sense to me and um in fact, I had thought about doing that early on, but I had rejected the idea because the time wasn't right. But when Oliver brought that back up again, um, I realized no, he was absolutely right. And so um, I told him that I would do that, but if I was going to be in the book, he was going to have to be in the book too. <laughs> and so <laughs> thankfully he agreed. went on board. Yeah. So he was on board and he came with me into the bravely into the fictional world. And too, you know, of course those are not really, you know, th- they're fictional characters. They share our names. They share a lot of our traits and our, you know, whatever foibles, but, um, but they are most definitely fictional characters too. Yeah. 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 So anyway, long
3: story, but that's, that's how that, that's how that came about. I, yeah, yeah. I, you know, just thinking of you kind of auditioning people and then obviously the the tragedy in Japan in, in 20, 2011. And I wonder, is there a feeling of a kind of gratitude for all of the changes that the book went through to to bring it to where it is now? I mean, we wouldn't have the character now as she is in the book if you hadn't auditioned so many people, right? And we wouldn't have, it would feel like less of a a touchstone Mm -hmm. um, if we hadn't been able to incorporate the tragedy of the, the tsunami and the earthquake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating process. You know um, it's, I
2: I never know how to understand it even or how to describe it, but um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And thank you for, you know, thank you for, you know, sort of understanding that because it was almost like the book and this sounds so, kind of woo woo that I hate to, you know, I hate to even say it, but, but it's, it is that kind of feeling. It's almost like the book existed, but yeah. the book wasn't ready to happen until, you know, so I tuned into its frequencies back in, you know, whatever it was, 2001, 2002, but the book wasn't ready to happen until after the earthquake and tsunami. And so for a long time, I was just kind of spinning my wheels auditioning all these characters and, and you know, having them kind of step in briefly and and then step out again. And, you know, I was, you know, there, there were, oh, I mean, there was a period in there where I just thought I'll never finish this book. And I gave up for a while. Um, and then, you know, sort of got back on board in about 2007 and started again. And, and then at the end, after, you know, after the tsunami, when I realized that, I was going to have to reconstruct this thing completely, had to kind of unzip the book because it was, even back then, it was told in kind of alternating sections, right? Now the reader, now the reader, you know, and I had to kind of unzip it. And I threw out about, I don't know, maybe 350 pages at that point. You know, I mean, it was really, uh, it was really hard. But when I look back on what the result is, it also feels inevitable. It feels like this book could not have existed had I not gone through all of that process. And, and I always think that, you know, for me, writing is a process. It's not something that I do in order to get some kind of preconceived end result because i never know what the end result is going to be it's a process of discovery and so i just have to be as patient as i can be and i'm not a patient person i'm a very impatient person um, most writers are right we don't want we don't want to write we want to have written right that's yeah. what they that's what they say but yeah no i mean I, I just have learned that that's my process and i just have to be as patient as i can be
3: yeah mm-hmm. kind of the idea of you're tuning into a frequency it's the book kind of feels like this omnipotent, you know, physical <laughs> being and you're tuning in and you're just like, come on, like, come on, give me your story. Come that's on. Right. And the book's just like, nope, not yet. not
1: that's yet, right.
3: Nope. That's nope. Right. We're going to wait. Like I'm going to make you keep working for it. Um, that's right. Just, that's I, right. I think right. that's part of the creative process though, is that it is like, it's this itch. You have to keep scratching until you know, you're satiated. Sort of.
2: Hey, absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, you do recognize I mean, I do recognize it when it happens. So, for example, when I unzipped the novel through 300 and whatever pages away and started writing the Ruth and Oliver sections into the book, I wrote half of the book in 9 months after working 9 years on it right so in other words it was so clearly the right answer and it happened just very very quickly it was one of the sort of the most thrilling writing experiences I've ever had because I'd never experienced yeah exactly I'd never experienced that kind of certainty before in my writing and um, you know (laughs) of course it spoiled me because I just kind of kept thinking why can't it always be like this you know you. Mm-hmm.
0: As I mentioned, Ruth Ozeki's novel, A Tale for the Time Being, is Multnomah County Library's Everybody Reads 2023 pick. It's a community-wide event put together by the library and sponsored in part by the Library Foundation. I asked Ozeki how she fell in love with books, and I loved her answer.
2: I mean, really, through libraries, um, and and my parents were, you know, were big readers, and they had, you know, lots of books on their bookshelves. So I was always taking them down and reading those. I also went to an elementary school that had a nice library itself, and and so we were always being encouraged to read. But I just remember in the summer, summer vacation, my mother used to take me to the library a couple times a week. And we would, she would just kind of leave me there in the children's section while she read magazines upstairs or where she she did her shopping. Um, So she would just kind of drop me off in the basement. And there were these lovely librarians there who I thought they lived there. I thought librarians lived there and I thought they owned all of those books. And I was, I mean, I was very little and, um, and I thought it was so kind of them to offered to lend me books. I mean, they would just give me books and I could take them home and I could read them and I could come back and, you know, talk to them about the books that I'd read. That was just an early memory that I had. Um, When I was a kid, I wanted to be a librarian. I thought that was about, that was kind of the pinnacle of a person's dreams to be able to be surrounded by all these books and, and, um, and have them, just have them there. So libraries, I mean, continued to play big part in my life and and um, in fact you know the remember I told you that the first reader, For Now's diary, lived in a library.
3: I was just thinking that, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. And so that library was, you know, when I was living in Vancouver, um, I used to spend a lot of time at the Vancouver Public Library. And then I also have lurked and hung out quite a bit at the Seattle Public Library, which is just, you know, the Rem Koolhaas Library. Um,
3: Library, crazy library. I wanted to live in that library. I, I yeah,
2: I I that library just. Uh, there's so much to say about that library. I know. Um, anyway, so, but the Vancouver Public Library is also stunning. It's, it's, I, I love that. I love both of those libraries. And um, so in any case, the, the character, the reader, now first reader, lived in the library and had a group of friends who lived in the library. And that character was the one that was cut out of the book, but the character kind of and and the library location kind of lurked in my hard drive, and seemed to need a new fictional home, mm-hmm. um, and that was the way that the book of form and emptiness started, um, because the book of form How and emptiness corners? is set in a library, and it's that same library, and a lot of the characters in a book of form in, in the book of form and emptiness were immigrants from. Early drafts of a tale for the time being, and it was really the library as a location that was just, and and the characters who lived there. It was just, you know, they they were so powerful that they they demanded a world of their own.
3: I love that. I, really, <laughs> I honestly, I could talk about libraries and my love of them for so mm-hmm. long, but I think especially now that representation is such a thing that matters and. Yeah libraries are such a place that can be emblems of representation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's wonderful to go into different libraries in different parts of town and see, you know, I remember when I lived in Boston, there was a a big group of uh, Russian immigrants that lived there, and they had a huge collection of Mm -hmm. Russian titles. And the Mm -hmm. same, um, when I lived in Seattle, there were so many Japanese readers. And so to Mm -hmm. see my neighbors represented in that way in libraries. To me, it's always felt like this is just, this is democracy represented in the best Mm -hmm. way. Everyone has a book. Everyone has a story, both literally and metaphorically at a library. So that's, I think it's so cool that the city of Portland is coming together and we're all reading your book. I love that. I just love that. I, you know, I've visited
2: Portland, I've been lucky enough to visit Portland and work with literary arts before. And, and the whole library scene in Portland is just astonishing. It's, it's wonderful. So I'm really excited about that. And I also think that, you know, libraries now are more important than ever. I mean, because when you think, right, I mean, the, the, the role that they serve in the community is really, really important. You know, they're a place where where people can people can go and find, information about the world that is somewhat reliable which these days is is you know incredibly important and libraries too i mean i always think about this i always think about how you know if if a politician came up with this idea and said you know i know what we'll do we'll use we'll use several million dollars of taxpayers money to build a beautiful grand building in the middle of the city and we will fill this building with books and then we'll give everybody who lives in the city a little card and they can come in and just take the books out for free wouldn't that be wonderful right you know that would just go over like a lead balloon that would never you know we would never ever get that right and so they're so precious now and they are endangered and we need to really fight to keep them alive and vibrant
0: An interview with Ruth Ozeki, the award-winning writer of A Tale for the Time Being. An enormous thank you to my wonderful guest, Ruth Ozeki, and a big thank you to the staff of Literary Arts for their help coordinating this interview. This is Noteworthy. I'm your host, Lindsay Maynard, and until next time, happy
3: reading.